Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and today we're going to discuss the rather delicate men's health issue of prostatic disease with Dr Peter Nash. Welcome Dr Nash. Thank you. We ought to initially run through the prostate, where it belongs, what it normally does at the various ages of a man's life. Uh, the prostate sits uh, in, on the pelvic floor, uh, inferior to the bladder. Uh, it is part of the male urethra, and in that sense it uh, conveys urine from the bladder out the uh, penis. Uh, it also allows uh, seminal fluid produced by the seminal vesicles to be expelled into the prostatic urethra during ejaculation. Um, and it produces a prostatic fluid that uh, is important in the nourishment of sperm uh, uh, during ejaculation. So that's quite important to fertility and um, normal ejaculation. Correct. Right. And lately there has been a little bit of controversy about prostatic disease has been a bit somewhat in the media. What What's that been about? I guess the most controversy relates to uh, prostate cancer, uh, mm-hmm. the investigation and screening for prostate cancer and the management of prostate cancer. So how uh, do we screen for prostate cancer? The issue uh, with respect to screening is a, is a delicate one. Right. Uh, there are a number of uh, bodies throughout the world who have uh, differing viewpoints. Uh, some are uh, staunch uh, supporters of screening, mass screening of the population uh, for prostate cancer. Some are supporters of uh, case finding for prostate cancer and other institutions throughout the world do not or believe that there's not evidence enough to support the introduction of screening programs. Um, we do know that the American Cancer Society and the American Urological Association are pro-screening and have been so for many, many years. Uh, in this country, um, screening per se has not been uh, embraced uh, as yet and I guess to be fair, a number of the uh, organisations are waiting for definitive evidence that uh, supports uh, uh, mass screening programs. And to date, there is not one specific study that demonstrates that screening uh, has led to a significant reduction in the death rate from prostate cancer. However, saying that, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that has been found throughout the world that supports the concept of screening and I think will ultimately show that there is a benefit to screening. There was a Swedish study uh, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago that demonstrated in a population of men who were screened for prostate cancer, their risk of developing metastatic prostate cancer was significantly less and their risk of dying from prostate cancer after if they were offered treatment uh, was significantly less compared to the population that was managed uh, with watchful waiting. Um, there has been another uh, Canadian study which showed that uh, a screening for prostate cancer led to a significant reduction in the development of metastatic uh, prostate cancer. And together this information would suggest that screening appears to make a difference. Mm-hmm. There are two large prospective studies currently underway, one uh, in Europe and the other in the United States, they are yet to report that early evidence suggests that screening will have a significant positive impact on um, 
prostate cancer and death from prostate cancer. But those studies have not yet reported. I think the United States reports uh, this year and the European is due to report next year. So, in other words, the controversy exists because we're not sure whether the treatment actually prevents death or <laughs> metastatic disease. Well, I think there's some evidence to support the treatment mm-hmm. does lower the risk of developing metastatic disease mm-hmm. and the implication is subsequently improve uh, survival. Mm-hmm. But the, a prospective randomised trial with that result is only underway, mm. as I said, in Europe and the United States. Right. Um, and, and so the question for practitioners, mm. I guess, is mm. if there's not definitive evidence, do you ignore circumstantial evidence that supports it? Mm. Or do you say, well, there is circumstantial evidence to support it, and I accept that evidence, and I practice based upon that evidence? Mm. I guess government bodies will say, look, until we've got definitive evidence yeah. that suggests that this results in that, we're not prepared to fund it, I guess, is... Mm. I, I was just going to say, I think that's the difference. Their job as bureaucrats is to keep the uh, books straight. Now, we're, our clinical practice is such that we deal with human beings and see the consequences. And that's of, right. Uh, and, <laughs> and that and does alter us, and, and, you know, rightly or wrongly. Correct, and that's why there's mixed messages. Exactly. Government Precisely. suggesting one thing and clin- clinicians suggesting mm. another. Um, and, and I understand that. And, and unfortunately, yep. for the general public, it makes it a little bit difficult for them to know. Yes, precisely. And that's why it's so important that they speak to their, their physician. And, yes. Uh, but it makes for the physician a difficult job in explaining <laughs> all the intricacies involved in... Right. Uh, the well, I guess that brings me to my next issue. When one does a PSA for screening, at what age would you suggest that it... I mean, knowing now that it is a controversial issue whether one screens or not, about what age is it important to, to start to, to do PSAs? It depends on two things. Whether we, should, we should mention, I suppose, it's just a blood test, a simple blood test. Uh, PSA is an enzyme that's right. produced by the prostate gland. Right. It... Um, its function is to liquefy seminal fluid, right. uh, which is important in subsequent fertility. Uh, it is produced by normal prostate cells. It is produced by benign prostatic hypertrophy cells, and it's produced by prostate cancer cells. So it's not specific for cancer, but it is specific for the prostate. Right. And there are many things that can cause the PSA to go up. We know in men as they age, their prostate volume increases in size and similarly the PSA tends to go up over time. And what age does that begin, that increase? Uh, probably from about the age of 35, 40. Right. Change in hormones. Yes, correct, and uh, subsequent the development of you know, prostatic hypertrophy. Right. Um, we also know, though, inflammatory conditions of the prostate, you know, acute prostatitis, uh, urinary tract infections uh, will also result in increasing in levels of PSA. Hmm. Ejaculation uh, has a, a temporary effect on PSA levels and will increase the level for a 24, 48-hour period uh, before it returns to normal levels. And so this is, once again, part of the problems with PSA testing, that it's not specific for cancer mm-hmm. uh, and there are other disease processes and normal physiological events that can affect the level. But there's no doubt that there is a correlation between the level of PSA and the risk of developing uh, 
uh, prostate cancer. Finding prostate cancer. Yeah. What 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 levels are we talking about? Okay. Return to your first question, when should you screen for prostate cancer? Right. The general consensus is um, in men uh, with a life expectancy of in excess of 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, it is reasonable to, I think, and uh, most uh, urologists uh, to screen for prostate cancer from the age of 50 mm-hmm. with an annual PSA, mm-hmm. but would also suggest that they also have a digital rectal examination. Yes, well, I think that's the part where you get men sort of balking at the the whole concept. I know that, for example, I mean, very similar in women, the pap smear, the cervix is the sort sure. of counterpart, really, isn't it, of the prostate. And that is probably the area that is most difficult, isn't it, for men? Yeah. But it's reasonable to have a PSA anyway? Uh, look, yes, absolutely. I think yeah. uh, if they will only have one test, it's not unreasonable to do a PSA. It's probably mm-hmm. um, more uh, sensitive than uh, digital rectal examination. Mm-hmm. But together, uh, there is a significant benefit in picking up uh, prostatic malignancy if, mm-hmm. it, if the t- two are used together rather than one alone. Yeah. I think there's been a, a, a change in men's attitude to being investigated mm-hmm. and screened for prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. I think they're generally better educated than they were, say, 10 years ago, and yes. they're more accepting of yes. investigation and, and, and management. But returning to the question of screening, so most would advocate an annual digital rectal examination and PSA from the age of 50. Mm-hmm. Unless a patient is at considered at high risk, and in North America that includes African-Americans, uh, but also uh, a patient who has a first-degree relative with uh, prostate cancer. So if there's a family mm-hmm. history, uh, most would advocate screening from the age of uh, 45 with an annual uh, digital rectal examination and PSA. Mm-hmm. And if there's a very strong family history, two or more first-degree relatives with the disease, then most would advocate uh, screening from the age of 40. Right. The problem is the model is constantly changing. Yes. And in North America... The issue of screening and finding false positive results and the psychological impact yes. of that, we're well aware of that and mm. we're constantly trying to improve uh, the um, ability of the, the accuracy of the test mm-hmm. and the uh, reducing the potential, I guess, morbidity mm. of screening, mm. decreasing the frequency of it as we better understand PSA uh, kinetics and mm. uh, patient populations. And so, I mean, it's constantly changing. That's that's a broad general uh, right. recommendation. At this As point we said at this point in time. Yeah. And once one does have a raised PSA, what's the next step okay. if one finds that? The good question is, what is a normal PSA? Right. And there's no such thing as a normal PSA. Right. I use PSA as a guide to decide who I investigate further. Right. And investigating further means doing a transrectal ultrasound and biopsy of the prostate. Right. Now that's so, an outpatient procedure that's easily done? Uh, a biopsy generally is an outpatient procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no anaesthetic required, though some people do uh, use some local anaesthetic and block the prostatic nerves. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do. It is generally very well tolerated. There are some side effects. Uh, most patients will uh, have some blood in their urine or in their bowel motions for a day or two afterwards. Uh, there's a most people uh, would do the procedure under some sort of antibiotic Right, uh, in case it's cover. prostatitis is the reason for the PSA, and, or the right? development, most, more commonly mm-hmm. the development of a 
urinary tract infection. Right. Mm-hmm. And despite antibiotics, so there's probably an incidence of about 1% to 3% of a urinary tract infection right. prompting a period of uh, admission to hospital and IV antibiotics. Right. Uh, but that's, by and large, it's a, a relatively simple test. The best way we have of assessing the pathology of the prostate, um, it won't, it, as a general rule, it's very accurate. A negative biopsy doesn't necessarily exclude prostate cancer, but we know if you've got an underlying prostate cancer, um, up to 85-90% of the cancers will be identified on one biopsy, right? one set of biopsies. Right. Well, because you do a few passes. What we do is, it, once again, this has evolved over the years, I guess the most commonly performed biopsy regime at the moment is what they call a 12-core biopsies. Um, six cores from each lobe of the prostate, uh, specifically uh, aimed at the peripheral zone of the prostate where the vast majority of prostate cancers are developed. Okay, and that's all done under ultrasound guidance. And ultrasound guidance. And the the development of transrectal ultrasound 25 years ago uh, really made this possible. The ultrasound per se, uh, there's a a misconception, I think, that the ultrasound is used to identify prostate cancer. In general rule, ultrasound is not effective identifying mm-hmm. prostate cancer mm-hmm. but we use it uh, to guide uh, where we take the biopsies from. Right, okay so if we come back with the diagnosis of benign prostatic hypertrophy mm-hmm. what can we do about that? In terms of the management of benign yes. prostatic hypertrophy? Yes. Oh well I mean uh, there are various treatment options uh, the diagnosis of benign prostatic hypertrophy alone does yes. not require treatment. Got it, right. Like, it, it, you reassure the patient that yep. there's no underlying malignancy as far as you can tell. Okay. Um, if they have symptoms of bladder outlet obstruction, which is thought right. to be related to BTH, right. then there are various treatment options available from medical therapy, surgical intervention and newer modalities of treatment. Right, so that's what we tailor make to that patient. Correct. Right, and then if it is prostatic carcinoma? Okay. If prostate cancer is identified... Um, there's a long discussion with the patient and the patient's family uh, with respect to various treatment options. Now, essentially, in people who are identified to have prostate cancer, clearly you want to make sure... You, we do generally a, a staging screen to make sure that there's no evidence of metastatic disease. Provided their PSA is less than 10, it is very unlikely that they will have demonstrable spread on either a bone scan or a CT scan outside of the prostate. So the majority of people don't bother doing CT scans or bone scans if the PSA uh, is less than 10. Um, But obviously if the PSA is greater than 10, then it would not be inappropriate to do a bone scan and a CT scan to adequately stage the patient. Mm -hmm. Depending on their staging determines their treatment options. Uh, With the introduction of PSA some 25 years ago, uh, now we've seen an enormous stage migration in uh, people presenting with prostate cancer, uh, whereas uh, 10, 15 years ago, probably up to 50% of patients presented with metastatic disease, that would be a very unusual presentation today. Right. So we've, you know, that is one thing, that's one impact PSA has certainly made. Mm. There's been a huge stage migration to a lower stage disease. Mm. But it, so the vast majority of patients who uh, undergo a biopsy and are found to have prostate cancer as a result of PSA testing uh, will have a, uh, clinically organ-confined disease. And right. if they have organ-confined disease, they essentially have three options. Uh, the first is active surveillance, 
where patients are not actively treated, but they are carefully monitored. To make sure that it doesn't spread. Well, we do know that prostate cancer can be a very slow-growing cancer. Right. The old adage that most men live with it rather than die mm-hmm. from it mm-hmm. is true to a certain extent. Right. And that's simply because uh, the vast significant percentage of men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer are relatively old and they're, they're not going to succumb to their prostate mm-hmm. malignancy. They're going to succumb to some other comorbidity. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if uh, you know it's a slow-growing mm-hmm. cancer mm-hmm. Uh, and the patient has competing comorbidities, mm-hmm. uh, doing nothing or active surveillance is not unreasonable. Right. In younger patients who don't have significant comorbidities, who uh, enjoy a very good quality of life, if they have only a very small volume of a slow-growing cancer, uh, it, it may be many, many years before that cancer has an impact on their life. And so some people might choose uh, active surveillance where there's no intervention so mm-hmm. they maintain their current quality of life mm-hmm. uh, without treatment. But they're closely monitored with a view to trying to identify evidence of disease progression. Mm-hmm. And that's using manifest either in a rising PSA mm-hmm. So they're followed maybe every six or 12 months with a PSA and perhaps re-biopsied every six or 12 months to see if the biopsy has changed. That is, mm-hmm. is there more cancer there than there was before? Is there a higher grade cancer than there was before? Right. And you can use that as a surrogate for evidence of disease progression. Mm-hmm. And then if there's evidence of disease progression, the patient has the option of deciding to undergo intervention or active treatment at that time or if they wish they can continue with active surveillance. So that's that's the rationale behind active surveillance and and it is a perfectly reasonable option for uh, the older patient who has uh, comorbidities and therefore their prostate cancer is less likely to have an impact on them or in a younger patient who has a a small volume of a a very slow-growing cancer that's unlikely to have a significant impact in the short term. And by small volume you mean you can tell that by... Well, that's interpreted based on the results of the biopsy. So right. if we take 12 cores oh, okay. of biopsy, okay. yep, the pathologist you. reports on those 12 cores. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He gives us a score called a mm-hmm. Gleason score, which right. is a score out of 10. Right. And, and basically that gives us an idea of the yep. aggressive nature of the cancer. Right. 8, okay. 9 and 10 are fast-growing cancers. 6 okay. is relatively slow. Seven is somewhere in between. between yeah. And right. also the pathologist reports on what percentage of that core is involved by cancer and he tells you the number of cores involved. And so obviously the higher the Gleason score, the higher the number of cores that are positive, the higher percentage of each core that is positive, that gives you an an idea of the volume of cancer in the prostate and that's directly proportional to the risk Mm. that that cancer represents to the patient. To the patient. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid, and we're discussing prostatic disease and health with Dr. Peter Nash. And so, what's the the, the more I won't say aggressive treatment, but the okay, if, the if more proactive have, treatment. If, if a patient is thought to have a biologically significant cancer, right? Uh, treatment options uh, include uh, surgical intervention, which is typically a radical prostatectomy. Right. These days can either be done as a retropubic approach, a perineal approach, laparoscopically or robotically assisted, mm-hmm. um, or some form of radiation therapy. And essentially, uh, today there are three different types of radiation therapy, which 
some are more, which one form may be more suited to one type of cancer than the other, but broadly speaking, there is brachytherapy, mm-hmm. where, and there's two types of brachytherapy, either seed brachytherapy, where uh, radioactive seeds are placed within the prostate, mm-hmm. and they emit radiation, and that delivers a high, uh, de- develops a high dose mm-hmm. of radiation therapy very locally, so right. you develop a high dose of radiation therapy without significant uh, side effects often associated with external beam radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. There is something called high dose rate brachytherapy which is a little bit similar to the seeds but Mm -hmm. uh, basically rods are put into the prostate and radioactivity are placed down those rods for a short period of time Mm -hmm. and then most often patients receive a boost of external beam radiation therapy and then the third option is the more traditional external beam radiation therapy. Right and are they all available currently in Sydney, for example, Newcastle? Yes, absolutely. Right, okay. What helps you to decide I mean, which one in which person? Okay, I mean, uh, that's part of the art, I guess, of oh, treating right. prostate cancer. Okay. Every treatment option mm. has potential risks and complications. Right, okay. For patients, the urologist will have a discussion with them. Mm. Uh, he will indicate what their treatment options are. Mm. He will indicate what the pros and cons of those treatment options are. Mm. And each patient will have a different view on those mm-hmm. potential risks and complications depending on their particular uh, you know, time in life sure. and what issues are particularly important to them, what side effects that they're prepared to accept and prepared not to accept. Mm-hmm. So, it, look, it, for the patient, it's not a diffi- it, it is a difficult decision-making process and mm-hmm. it takes some time and it requires a lot of information uh, to be given. And mm-hmm. from a doctor's perspective, it, 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 we just have to be patient and mm-hmm. regularly see the patient. Mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency these days to multidisciplinary treatment mm-hmm. where there are units where, where doctors or urologists will subspecialise. Mm-hmm. Uh, some within a group, some patients, some urologists will... Uh, specialise in surgical intervention, some will right. specialise in, in seed brachytherapy. Right. Um, and so I think... But your approach would be to, to offer people all options and, and discuss with them the various um, pros and Correct. cons I think I explained to them and allow them to decide which they'd prefer. I think we and try and help them make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I always tell my patients, look, I don't tell you what to do, no. but I'll help you make a decision. But mm. I often say also that, look, I think you're making a decision that I think is inappropriate, then right. I certainly mention that. Right. I think there's an obligation yes. today for the urologist to uh, refer on patients to see the appropriate specialist yes. for discussion regarding that specialty. So right. within our group, uh, patients will often be sent to a surgeon who has an interest in surgical intervention mm. for discussion regarding surgery. They'll also see a radi- radiation oncologist for right. discussion regarding radiation therapy, provided right. that's a reasonable treatment option for them. Right. And if they like, they also speak to a medical oncologist, though in organ-confined disease, yeah. um, there's little need for medical on. Well, there's, there's no mm. need for certain hormone therapy or chemotherapy at that point in time. Right, okay, so the hormone therapy and the chemotherapy come when the, when the prostatic carcinoma has actually gone outside the limits of the prostate. Traditionally, that's been the case. Yep. So if a, if a patient is considered incurable or very yep. likely to be cured with surgery or radiation therapy, mm-hmm. or if they have evidence of metastatic disease, mm-hmm. uh, initially at least patients would be treated with uh, hormone therapy. Mm. We know that about 85% of prostate cancers will respond 
to hormone therapy. And mm. hormone therapy, uh, basically testosterone, which is produced yes. by the male testicle and a little bit by the adrenal gland, uh, stimulates prostate cancer to grow. If yes. that testosterone is removed from the uh, circulating system, then uh, prostate cancer will shrink. Yes. Hormone therapy won't cure prostate cancer, but it can control it, and it can control it for significant periods of time. Right. So traditionally in patients with metastatic prostate cancer, they're commenced on hormone therapy, yeah. and uh, uh, traditionally that used to be continuous androgen blockade therapy. More recently, the concept of intermittent androgen blockade therapy where patients are commenced on hormone therapy, you watch their PSA, and their PSA will fall and reach an nadir, and when it reaches into the nadir, you stop the hormone therapy, and over time, eventually, the prostate cancer will start growing again and the PSA will start going up. And at mm-hmm. some point in time, you restart the hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. And the view is that by, re- by stopping hormone therapy, you reduce the potential side effects of hormone therapy, which may not be insignificant. Mm-hmm. Um, but it appears that it controls the cancer as well as continuous hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. The, there's no... There's some controversy with respect to that. I don't think that uh, there's been a definitive study that says intermittent therapy is as good as continuous therapy, mm-hmm. um, but it certainly appears that it is as good as, and uh, that's currently uh, generally well uh, practiced uh, in this country. Well, thank you very much. I think that pretty much covers the whole of the prostate. <laughs> question in in great depth and as you said I appreciate fully that it is as it stands at this point in time. Uh, yes and look uh, and, and yes and the, and the situation is constantly evolving. Yes. Um, uh, and it but it's quite an area of expertise isn't it from that point of view? I think the management of prostate cancer yeah. has become very sophisticated mm. and mm. will continue to do so. Mm. Uh, as I said a, a tendency to multidisciplinary management within mm hospitals and, and practices right. and I think that can only you know, serve to the betterment of the patient and patient care. I couldn't agree more and thank you very much yeah, for, for creating such and also for being with us this morning. I'm sure that uh, you've covered a topic that's near and dear to many men's hearts and uh, reassured them that at least they have the knowledge to equip themselves. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure, Virginia. To all of our listeners, thank you very much for listening to Wellbeing and we wish you well.